Welcome to the New Books Network. Again. In three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with Grace Lavery, author of the book Pleasure and Efficacy of Pen Names, Cover Versions, and Other Trans Techniques. Grace, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks, Mark. Great to be here. Great to have you on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Absolutely. Well, I, I'm a I'm an English professor. I teach at UC Berkeley, and uh, my specialization is in 19th century British literature. But increasingly, I have found myself writing about contemporary literature of various different kinds. And I think in some ways what has drawn me to do so is the same thing that drew me to 19th century literature in the first place, which is... Um, a very sort of instinctive resistance to modernism as a mode of organizing value um, to the particular forms of difficulty and um, intensity that modernism values, I think, are ones that were preceded by much more interesting forms and succeeded by much more interesting forms. So in a way, I think of my work as a sort of long history of, uh, of, the, of the thing that isn't modernism from about 1800 to the present. I was thinking as you were describing that about how so many of those themes that you just described are are uh, on display uh, in your book. What led you to write a book about uh, you know transgenderism, transsexuality, and mm. and its its representation in in culture and, and 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 its distortion in culture, shall we say? Yeah. Well, I mean, I I began my transition uh, in about twenty eighteen, uh, early twenty eighteen. Um, so one short answer would be that, that the period of composing this book overlapped to a significant degree with the period in which I was thinking about transitioning and then started to transition. Uh, and, and those experiences did a number of things to me. But one of the things that they did was make me increasingly frustrated at the claims about myself that I was required to make in order to uh, access the kinds of care that I wanted. So the first time I showed up at the Lion Martin hospital in uh, in San Francisco. Line Martin Hospital is a fabulous, uh, fabulous hospital and, and definitely worth defending. They handed me a sheet of paper asking me how old I was when I realized I was born in the wrong body. And it's not because uh, they necessarily believe that such a claim could possibly be true or sustainable, but that's what the medical uh, insurance, insurance companies have decided is necessary in order to supply a diagnosis of gender identity disorder, which is the only possible basis upon which uh, cross-sex hormones can be provided. So in other words, in order to do the thing that I wanted to do, which was take cross-sex hormones, uh, I needed to make a claim about myself uh, that wasn't true. And that frustrated me a great deal. And, uh, you know, I, I, the claim in particular is that I, I have never believed that I was born in the wrong body. I don't even know what that would mean. Um, I know that some people do find that language useful, and I'm not really trying to look down on them or dismiss them at all. One of the things I've learned is that Trans people come in in various different um, shapes and sizes. But what is important, I think, is that uh, one shouldn't be required to say these things in order to gain autonomy over one's own body or to gain uh, access to forms of social care that one needs. So that got me to look into the, the kind of history of how that medicalization and that metaphysical claim came into being. And, uh, you know, somewhat to my surprise, I realized uh, fairly quickly that at the very time that such claims were being articulated, 
by sometimes by trans people and sometimes by the medical state. Um, at that same time, there were plenty of other ideas about transition that were available from the mid 19th century onwards. And so I became increasingly interested in understanding what I thought of as the pragmatic dimensions of transition. That is to say, how people have effectuated sex changes um, without making necessarily any metaphysical claims about themselves or about the world. And, uh, you know, the, the purpose of that, I guess, is on the one hand to try to agitate for greater um, access and greater freedom in relation to uh, sex, embodiment, gender. Uh, but the other part of it is to try to supply trans people with a history that doesn't require them to doesn't require us to say things that we may or may not feel to be true about our own experience. Um, so yeah, that's what that's what that's sort of the the, the the impetus behind the book. That was one of the things that, for me, reading it was was especially interesting because it was. I mean, we think of the the whole discussion over transgenderism as 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 a very modern discussion, as a very contemporary discussion, and yet yeah. what you're pointing to is that we have. Uh, historically for 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 literally centuries uh you know talked about gender identity in in, in various forms and in, in ways that are uh you know very contemporary and and yet we tend to we, we we you know tend to forget this or or, or outright ignore it you know I, th I think that's right there are, there are a couple of things i'd add um i think gender identity as a particular kind of um conceptualization of what might motivate a transition that is relatively new that sort of arises in the late 80s early 90s with the uh, revision of certain uh, diagnoses for the dsm um but if, if one takes that not as the kind of inaugural phenomenon but actually just as a sort of uh, belated attempt by the the medical institution to try to take charge of a situation um you know one can look backwards and see for centuries, uh, people have enjoyed and indulged in many kinds of transitions. So, you know, people have lived in same-sex relationships while in drag, for example. Um, sometimes people have uh, had whole, you know, second lives where they where they live in various different kinds of sex and gendered identities. And um, these things aren't always, by any means, in the nineteenth century, reducible to. Uh, homosexuality or to a kind of closetedness around homosexuality. You know, that's something that people often say, but it, it's fairly easy to disprove with Fanny and Stella, for example, being the two major examples in the 19th century. Um, but the other thing I, I think I'd want to say is that uh, one doesn't really need a, a, an idea of gender identity in order to understand transition. You know, sometimes people decide to do things to either their body or to their sense of themselves as a legal or social person. Um, and, and it's very difficult to prevent them from doing so. Uh, and so given that we are living in a moment where the state uh, seems to have a greater and greater interest in, in the biopolitical regulation of bodies, uh, it's all more important to look back at these histories and say, well, actually, before the biopolitical control of uh, transition, actually, people could transition without making any of these claims. Um, and as a result, I as a result, the sort of present mystification Sometimes people talk about trans or trans people as though it was a highly specialized uh, kind of person or, you know, highly rare and um, coherent sort of uh, identity. Again, historically, that's very easy to disprove. Um, but it, it, in, in the present scene, it's a little bit more complicated because sometimes people feel as though 
their kind of coherence as um you know as a minority as a group of people who are um oppressed and minoritized by the state uh depends upon a certain sense of exclusivity and kind of ontological stability i think the argument in my book is that actually we need to look beyond that uh just as i think gay people uh, and lesbian people and bisexual people historically have had to look beyond the notion of um ha having a, a a stable and um iterable and predictable sexual identity or sexuality i think often um, those the, the notions that sexuality and gender identity are written in the womb or written on the soul uh, are for the birds. And while I can understand why people have been attracted to those ideas, um, I want to try to provide some better ones. So you do this by you you uh, break down your examination into two parts, and I want to uh, look at the first part uh, mm -hmm. of, uh, uh, right now, which is the. The, the 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 pragmatic examination that you undertake which which uh, looks at a lot of uh, this is where i you when you were describing your your background as as a scholar of 19th century british literature where it really comes out uh, most clearly yeah. I, I saw the connection right there i was wondering if you could perhaps uh, elaborate a bit upon what you're talking about there regarding say transrealism and yeah. uh, some of the 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 literary examples that that you that you bring into uh, your your examination yeah. And before I do, I think I do just want to say, especially uh, since I know that there are people from a number of different disciplines listening, my training is as a literary critic, not as a historian. So while I'm making claims about a historical setting and I try to hold those claims accountable to uh, the work of historians who know the archives better than I do, my work is really to try to uh, reconstruct in as much detail as I can the affective um, and intimate feelings that are being communicated and formalized in sometimes very complicated ways um, in literary writing and, and in cultural work a variety of forms. Um, so the first of these um, the genres or modes that I um, that I try to consider is something that I've called transrealism. And what I mean by that is quite straightforward. Uh, I mean that in the 19th century, the notion that uh, there was a sort of universal requirement uh, that people examine the, the the ways in which sex and gender construct them as a person was deeply bound to the emergent generic uh, form of realism. So what I mean by that is that George Eliot, for example, who is sometimes thought of as the greatest of English realists, and certainly that's uh, not a reputation I would try to dispute, um, Eliot was someone who is always thinking about the, the ways in which people become people because and through the roles that they adopt. And those roles are determined by, in some ways, but not uh, exclusively by sexual identity. And what that means is, and Eliot's very clear about this too, that in order to try to think one's way out of the roles that have been as ascribed to one, one also somehow needs to confront or think one's way out of the uh, application of gender onto sex. And that's something that Eliot talks about in some detail in a very famous section of uh, Adam B, the first novel, um, in which uh, the narrator starts talking about how realism is a method for examining the limitations in one's own body. And specifically, all the examples that, uh, that Eliot gives of these limitations all have to do with sexuation and sexualization. So um, beards, uh, uh, be beards for men and uh, various forms of um, sex secondary sexual characteristics in women. And so the idea, I think, that Eliot's trying to play with there is that 
if we are going to overcome the, 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 the roles into which we've been slotted in our lives, we really need to uh, rethink those relationships. And of course, I, I don't think it's an accident that, uh, that Elliot was um, also a person who had, in a number of senses, transitioned. Uh, Elliot was someone who was born under the name Mary Ann Evans, uh, was certainly uh, a woman in terms of her day-to-day -day life, in terms of uh, the way in which she lived and loved, um, but who also not only used a male pseudonym, which was far less common than people seem to think, but also tried to maintain that pseudonym long after people had uh, discovered that it was a pseudonym. And that's that's pretty interesting on a few levels. Um, when you ask people who aren't necessarily in the field why they think a 19th century writer might adopt a masculine pseudonym, the, the answer people tend to give is that they they think it was um, they, they they suspect it was for practical reasons that men were more likely to sell books, so they used uh, a masculine pseudonym. This really isn't true, and I don't think anyone who works in 19th century fiction. Could, could really hold that opinion for more than a minute. The, the best-selling novelists of the 19th century were women, uh, Jane Austen being the obvious example, but there are plenty of others. And the examples of other um, pseudonyms that people use, specifically the Bronte sisters, who, who went by Acton, Curra, and Alice Bell, those names were not chosen because they were masculine, but because they were ungendered, supposedly. They were, they were chosen in order to confuse the reader about why. Um, and, and as soon as those names were um, abandoned, the, the writers very easily went by um, Anne Bronte, Charlotte Bronte and Emily Bronte in public and didn't try to change that anymore. Eliot's very different. Um, we know from Eliot's diaries and letters that there's a real investment in having uh, readers think of the, the author of these books as a man and in having that uh, incognito, uh, as it sometimes gets called, maintained and uh and upheld even after you know the, the the writerly identity had been exposed which was an act uh bizarrely committed by charles dickens the, that exposure in a, in a letter to Eliot, um that that made Eliot very sad i mean Eliot did not want to be exposed in that way by charles dickens so in other words i think what we can see is that Eliot was a writer who wanted to uh, undergo some kind of transition and indeed did undergo some kind of transition now i'm not trying to claim that this makes um Eliot a man in any kind of metaphysical sense or trans in any metaphysical sense um the whole tenor of my book is to try to push against that reading what i do think is sort of obvious or at least important is that Eliot was a writer who to some extent and in certain ways transitioned and that transition was important and valuable, uh, not because of anything it revealed about the kind of the nature of the soul, but because it was desirable for whatever reason. It might have been fun. It might just have been um, uh, it, it might have been the subject of a great deal of longing. Um, and, and we have some clues about that. But the point is that uh, that it worked. And we still refer to George Eliot as the author of these books long after we stopped referring to the author of Jane Eyre as Carabelle. It's it's that notion of, of of the fluidity of identity that that I I I thought you did a great job of of developing in in the in the later chapters. I, I, the one, of course, that that I I was uh, most amused by was the notion of the king's two anuses because that yeah it, it, it connected a lot of things with, with which I was which, which I was already familiar. But it also gets to the fact that we're not just talking about gender identity here; we're talking about other aspects that which are fluid, which you know demonstrate the existence of this broader concept uh that that we oftentimes don't really connect with 
uh, transgenderism, but but are very much relevant to it. Yeah, yeah, no. So the King's Two Anuses is an essay that um, I was. A, a lot of the, the the chapters in this book started life as essays, and a lot of the essays started life as um, lectures that I was invited to give to address some particular constituency. So this is a slightly um, haptic and chaotic vibe to the book at times, which I actually <laughs> something I value about it. But uh, you know, this was um, a paper that I was asked to develop for a. Um, a conference on contemporary fascist aesthetics that was being put together by uh, a couple of junior scholars at Berkeley at the time, Josh Weiner and uh, Ramsey McGlazer. And what, it, what really fascinated me was the convergence of uh, trans rights as a kind of uh, emerging set of civil rights claims and free speech discourse insofar as that had become such a massively charged and intensely freighted uh, discussion in the wake of the 2016 election and the and I think not just the election in which free speech seemed to play an outsized role but also the discussions around the, the virtues of social media afterwards and I think um, trans politics and free speech became soldered together during that period partly because uh, trans rights would seem to be uh, on some level about a, a, a limitation on free speech in the sense that people are seem to seem to be requesting uh, that other people use pronouns in a way that may not be intuitive there. Um, now, I, I've written on this topic in a policy setting, and I, I don't think that is a limitation on, on free speech in any credible sense. And luckily, since I wrote that article, the Supreme Court agreed with me. Um, but, uh, you know, my, my, my greater interest is in how these ideas of freedom the kind of the freedom to transition and the freedom to speak, how these two freedoms might interact and how those freedoms might be conceptualizable in a psychoanalytic frame. You know, often my method in this book is um, psychoanalytic and, and that's just, again, part of my training. But um, psychoanalysis is a, is, is a discipline in which the freedom to speak and the freedom of speech are complicated ideas. And of course, Sexuation is also a profoundly complicated idea in relation to freedom in psychoanalysis. So that that, that chapter is an attempt to think through the, the collision of trans and free speech at the present moment. Yeah, I'd like to uh, move on now to the second uh, part of your book, uh, which is the, 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 the question of surviving negation. Here, you do much more of a contemporary, uh, an engagement with contemporary uh, society and yeah. representations in it. And, and here is where you're not just simply describing uh, the, the engagement with, with, with transgenderism, but you're talking about the basically how we can move forward in a more positive way. And I was wondering if you could perhaps uh, elaborate upon that part and, and the ways in which you do it in, in some of the essays in this section. Yeah. So, you know, a, a lot of the first part of the book is an attempt to really lay the ground for uh, a pragmatics of transition, which I think would differ from certain of the metaphysical claims, uh, which, as I said, I believe to be imposed upon trans people uh, from outside. But the second part is engaging something a little closer to home for many of us, which is uh, the, the tendency of, um, of, of certain academic and, and activist modes to, to treat transness as a kind of open or empty signifier that can uh, prove to the, the, the world at large the fungibility or, or, or negativity of sex and gender. Um, that is to say that people who are not 
trans often let me put it this way people who have chosen not to transition um often seem to imagine that uh transness proves that sex is not a binary or proves that um gender is uh, incoherent or, or or um or, or invisible um and i don't think that trans people the experiences of people who have transitioned would really uh, hold, hold those ideas up or support those claims um but also i think uh the uh there is a value to trying to describe in positive terms what is left after that that negation or negativity has done its work. Um, and I guess I'm thinking in particular about the complicated relationship that has existed for 30 odd years uh, or more between queer theory as an emerging disciplinary field and um, trans studies or trans discourse, which has emerged in the same period, but in very, very different ways. Queer theory has become quickly established and uh, institutionalized, sort of extremely influential and important scholarly field. It's a field in which um, I, I was trained and remain, um, to, to, to which I remain profoundly committed. Um, and at the same time, trans studies has really had very, very little uh, access to institutional um, institutional fields. I, I think I may have been the first transsexual to go through tenure in an English department. Um, in, uh, in in the US, a, gr a graduate department in the US. Um, I, I may be wrong about that. I know that there are other uh, trans women who are senior to me in English departments, but I, anyway, it, it, we're, we're in a minority. We're in a very, very small minority. And I think sometimes we have been used as illustrations of um, claims that we don't necessarily agree with or support. So that part of the book is really trying to um, find some ground next to and uh, outside of queer theory without, I think, um, or at least I hope, without um, throwing away what is useful and necessary about queer theory, especially in these moments of, um, you know, state crackdown on LGBT people in communities. Uh, and, you know, I think what, what I really want to take from uh, from queer theory and its classical formulations is the importance and necessity of coalitional politics, which is something that I return to again and again. But coalition is not the same as identity. And I think uh, it may be important for trans people to be able to identify in our own language and with our own, in our own terms, um, understanding of ourselves and of the world that might differ from those of other people in the coalition uh, with which we still necessarily need to organize. I I, th I thought about uh, as as you were as you were describing. I was thinking about uh, your essay about uh, uh, egg, the egg theory and and Susan Sontag because yeah. it, it it struck me. I, I know know knew very little about Susan Sontag before I, I read it, but it was fascinating to see how it. I was taking that you know in as I was listening to you about how you know how so how so often you have people who are uh, you know members of a community. Who oftentimes had these demands placed upon them by by members of of you know associated communities or or even yeah. members of the same community who who want certain things that maybe those people are not necessarily willing to provide and it's mm -hmm. in and 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 how that you know contributes and and, and shapes the 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 discussion. You know, Sontag's such a, an interesting example because uh, one of the things that happened when Susan Sontag died was a lot of people published. Um, essays, published uh, obituaries, <coughs> regretting the fact that Susan Sontag had never come out um, and had never really talked in detail about her 
sexuality. Um, the strange thing about that is I sort of, I think I prove fairly uh, conclusively uh, in the work that I present, Sontag had come out many, many, many times in a series of interviews, but had come out as bisexual. So in other words, um, there wasn't merely a desire for Sontag to have disclosed something about her identity. What people really wanted uh, was two things, I think. One, they wanted her to come out specifically as a lesbian rather than as a bisexual because um, of you know the, the various biphobic and institutional reasons why someone might want that. Um, but to be less um, moralistic about it, I think what people really wanted was for Sontag not merely to disclose her um, her experiences of sexuality, but uh, to 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 write an essay about them and to allow people in. There was a desire for some kind of access that disclosure does not provide, but an essay might. And so, in other words, for me, that that desire to fix an identity onto someone who may not want their identity fixed seems deeply connected to questions of genre and medium. Um, you know, an interview in the Guardian where. Sontag says, yeah, I've had sexual relationships with women and I've had sexual relationships with men. I you know, feel this way about that. Um, you know, that doesn't do the, the work generically that, um, th that an essay might. Now, what we've been talking about here is, is something of, of a scholarly discourse. But as you yeah. describe in the book, it, it's not just about, you know, scholars and 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 uh, and, and and, and queer theorists and, and transgender activists engaging in this, but there's this popular cultural representation, mm -hmm. or, or to be more accurate in terms of what we're about to talk, misrepresentation that you address. And I'm talking mm -hmm. here about your essay about the representation of, of, of uh, transgenderism in Silence of the Lambs, which is the one that might, you know, is the one that's probably most, most, with which people are most broadly familiar, which is this uh, character, Jane Gum, and the discussion around him that, that, I mean, arguably for a lot of people is their first, you know, presentation of, of transgenderism yeah. uh, and, and what it is and or what they or what they've been told it is. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, Jay Gum, Buffalo Bill and the Silence of the Lambs is an absolutely essential um, watermark um, uh, understanding of the transsexual in uh, American popular culture. And one can't really underestimate the, the influence that uh, that Jane Gum's pathology had in in defining um, defining transsexuality and specifically a form of transsexuality that I'll talk about in a minute um, for a generation of people, and it's you know it's interesting then, and I'm I'm always interested. Uh, I, I think one of the things that sort of links up my scholarly work uh, across various different media is I'm always really interested of, about the capacity of uh, literary and cultural text to provide consensus um, on things that seem straightforwardly factually incorrect. So in my first book, which is about 19th century writing about Japan, um, I spent quite a lot of time thinking about the claim that the, the, the opera, the Mikado, was not about Japan, which is a claim that actually I managed to trace back to a particular statement that was made by G.K. Chesterton, um, but which you know, pretty much everyone who's written about the Mikado uh, since since G.K. Chesterton in 1905 um, has said, don't worry, this opera is not really about Japan. Um, and so I think, you know, I began with like, well, why does this opera, which is so obviously about Japan, um, lend itself to that kind of consensus? And 
Um, you know, in the silence of the lambs, the consensus in question is uh, everyone from um, Thomas Harris to Jonathan Demme, who directed the movie, um, through to uh, Jodie Foster, not just the people involved in the movie, but then also the first generation of critics and then a group of scholarly readers of various different kinds, Marjorie Garbo, Jack Halberstam, you know, excellent readers of literary and cultural texts. I mean, truly Garber and, and Halberstam are both uh, among the, the best that there is, that there are, um, but they both say, you know, he's not a real transsexual. Um, and, and I don't know, I mean, I, I guess at this point I, I have a theory of why, but it but it was fascinating to me to see that that was happening because obviously this was someone who had appeared before um, physicians in three cases in the United States, we're told, um, and had described uh, self-described as a transsexual, sought access to transsexual surgery, um, and then after being denied um, medical care, uh, began a process of murdering women in order to stitch together um a kind of uh a kind of trans body from the discarded flesh of his victims one time incidentally i was giving a lecture on this um at i think it was harvard and one of the students asked me so you know are you saying that buffalo bill was was actually secretly the hero of uh, <laughs> of the silence of the lambs i was like no I, I really don't think that murdering large numbers of women and then flaying them uh, is a good move my point is is simpler which is only that for Buffalo Bill, um, this is part of a process of transition, and, uh, and 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 that that seems so obvious to me that I couldn't really understand why people were denying it. But of course, then I realised that um, the denial was important for a few reasons. One, it was important for sort of straight up politically correct reasons. It was necessary for everyone to kind of say that trans people were actually very. Uh, lovely and sweet and uh, had nothing in common with this. No real trans person would ever commit murder or or, uh, or flay uh, someone someone's skin off, um, which, you know, I can say pretty um, confidently is not true. There are as many uh, trans assholes as there are assholes of every uh, particular identity group. Not everyone is, as Clarice Starling says, passive. Um, but also, uh, and, and more in a more detailed way, the uh, the distinction between James Gum and the uh, and the transsexual showed up a distinction that was becoming important uh, in in the medical treatment of transsexuals um, and remains so today, which is the distinction between uh, the transsexual and the autogynophile. The former category is someone who has the delusional belief that they are a woman in a man's body. The second is someone who simply is sexually aroused by the thought of themselves as uh, uh, as a woman. Now, for uh, the, the, the medical theorists who are writing around the same time, that distinction mapped very neatly onto a kind of moral distinction. Transsexuals good, autogynophiles bad. Um, and of course, you know, since my work, as, as I've said many times now, is, is generally against those kinds of metaphysical claims. And, and certainly, I don't think there is anyone uh, who fits solely into one category, sex, desire, and embodiment being necessarily, I think, complex and interrelated ideas. You know, the work of that chapter is to try to blow apart that distinction between the transsexual and the autogynophile. It's it's interesting about how so much of this is about, you know, sort of, you know, self-conceptualization. And, and, and I like what you do in your epilogue, where you mm. tie it to this notion of, of, of beauty ownership and, and how it really kind of gets this notion about that, you know, discovering the inner self and 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 relating it to, you know, one's identity and, and embracing that. 
Yeah, you know, so the, the epilogue is uh, a reading of uh, a Kevin Rowland album called My Beauty. And it's an attempt to really think through what it means to refer to uh, a, a transition or a trans uh, identity or transitioned identity as mine. And I think what I'm really going for there, like the sort of reformed and embarrassed Kantian that I am, uh, is the argument that actually, you know, the interiority of a human being doesn't really belong to them at all. We can't propertize it. Um, and there might be benefits to understanding ourselves as, um, you know, as, as part of a system of collective ownership, uh, communism of collective ownership, if you like, rather than as um, a kind of fully self-contained and, and, and individually articulated human being. Hmm. Uh, we appreciate the time that you've taken to speak with us. But before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Absolutely. So the next book um, I have is actually already in production. It's a book about sitcoms. Uh, and heterosexuality is coming out next year. And other than that, I've actually been writing a bunch of fiction recently. So, um, you yeah, that, know, that's, that's, uh, I don't know how good I am at it, to be honest, but uh, that's something that's been taking up a lot of my time. Well, th those uh, both sound like fascinating projects. Uh, I look forward to seeing them when they come out, because especially given the, you know, analysis that you uh, display in this book here, it, sound, it, it sounds like the, the, the sitcom book will be very fascinating. I look forward to seeing your fiction when it comes out as well. Thank you so much. And thank you for reading my work so carefully, Mark. Oh, you're very welcome. Uh, Grace Lavery, I hope you have uh, a, a, a thank you for speaking. So I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. Cheers.